Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Samantha Wellington. Samantha is the Senior Vice President and Chief Legal Officer at Trinet, uh, Trinet an HR um, and payroll services company. Oh, that's the phone. You would think I would turn it off before I start recording, but it's not going to let me skip a beat. It's a great discussion with Samantha. Samantha is a fellow Australian lawyer who left Australia to conquer the world, and that's precisely what she's done. She talks about her early days at Oracle, how that gave her some exposure to board position in their Mumbai and Tokyo businesses, more recently, of course, with Trinet. A broad-ranging discussion, lots of really interesting topics, including Samantha's view on enterprise risk management. We talk a bit about that. And I also asked Samantha the question about the shared economy and its impact on the American dream. And I think you'll enjoy that answer. So as usual, it's a great discussion. And in the usual way, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hi, Samantha Wellington. Welcome to the show. Now, Samantha, some career highlights to let the audience know you're currently the General Counsel, Senior Vice President, Chief Legal Officer, GC, and and Company Secretary at Trinet. Mm By the way, an excellent organisation product. We actually use Trinet, so a, a, a plug there for, for Trinet. Yes, we certainly do. For the last 12 years before then, you were at Oracle, and you actually had some international kind of roles there too. I know you were part of the, the boards at Tokyo, I think, the Tokyo board as well as the Mumbai board. And, of course, you're an Australian-born um, lawyer that's got a fantastic international career. Tell us a little bit about the Samantha Wellington story and how you've gone from... I think it was Australian media lawyer right through to an international now um, senior vice president at Trinet. Tell us about that story. Uh, yes, I did do all of those things. So I think the interesting part about the story is uh, like it feels it feels like it should have been planned. And I think there is a, a level of intentionality about it insofar as I think you, you hear consultants say that something's directionally correct, right? I think my, my path was like directionally intentional, sort of a lot of acceptance of opportunities that came up along the way. Um, I think that the experience is a little bit interesting and a bit unusual. And I, I do think that, I, I think very, very strongly that my career so far is evidence of the idea that like luck is really just careful planning, meeting the ability to execute in in a sometimes very, very agile fashion. <laughs> um, I, I, I always wanted to work in, live and work in San Francisco. I came here with my family as a kid. I love the Tales of the City books. Fun fact, I now live uh, one block away from McCondre Lane, which is the lane that's featured in those books. But, but part of why I first took the role at Oracle was because they were based in the Bay Area and I figured that might move me one day. Um, yep. And was that because I just want yeah. to have international work, work and, and work overseas? Was that is that the directional bit, if you like? When you're an Australian lawyer, there's such a big world out there. What what was it? Was it I just want to live overseas? I just want to get the international experience. Or what was it that was put you know pulling you uh, towards the US and San Francisco? Uh, so San Francisco was sort of a, a personal thing, actually. More so, I just felt a great affinity with the city. When I came here as a kid, I felt like I. 
I belonged here and I, I love the city. I love being here. I, I, when I moved here, I felt like I was at home. So the San Francisco piece was a sort of a personal calling as opposed to a, a career based calling, but the international work, I never even, I, I didn't understand that international law was a thing, right? Like in 2000, the world was a lot further apart, right? Like when, when I went to university, we didn't do things on the internet. We didn't submit things via email or whatever. You still had hard copies. And so the world was a lot further apart. And I'm not sure that I even knew that an international lawyer was a thing, but the role at Oracle, certainly it was, you know, initially an Australian role then became an Asia Pacific role, then became a global role. And that absolutely set me up for the idea that, oh, this is a fascinating way to engage with culture around the world, meaning that I've always been really interested in the way that societal norms and law interrelate and the way in which law helps to form culture and the way that culture informs the law and interpretation of the law. And I think it's a really interesting way to engage with a whole bunch of different cultures around the world to sort of see how how the corporation views its role in a culture and how the law views the role of a corporation in society and the role of the employer, right? The role of the the corporation as an employer, as well as the role of the corporation in in sort of the the foundation or the construct of the society, I think is really, really interesting. Um, And that's genuinely how I think about corporate corporate law internationally. And that's why I think it's fun and exciting. Yep. And and tell me about the kind of the turning points or, or the influencing factors as you're going through your career, you're learning about the, or what you've talked about, about the societal norms, how they relate to the way you know, employees work within those. What, what are those, what are the kind of learnings and the turning points through your career that's getting you along and developing your interests there and, and teaching you, you know, what you might be interested in? So I think, I think for me, as I reflect on it, it's very much about like, being excited by and interested in what you do, which sounds super basic, but it's incredibly important. And so as you're thinking about, you know, the role of a corporate lawyer, you know, doing corporate transactions around the world, how I get excited about that and where I find the interest is in the societal construct and the norms and how that relates to culture, right? Other people might find it exciting for different reasons, right? Oh, I'm negotiating across borders and I, you know, I find the different constructs of an indemnity provision fascinating. That's not necessarily why I find it fascinating, but but finding... A small minority (laughs) of people are finding that bit fascinating, but you you never know. they're probably yeah. out there, but yeah. but for me yeah. it was something different. So I think I was actually just reflecting with my team today about we we at at Trinet we do this thing called core training, and it's a series of training modules for all of our colleagues across the company internally every year. And there's you know discrimination, harassment, business conduct and ethics, privacy, security, HIPAA. And from my perspective, when I reflect on that. I think about not just the training, but the role of the corporation in teaching what are kind of the basics of human behavior and respect and dignity and and that sort of thing. And I think what I find most fascinating about that is how, as a society, we rely on the employer to teach our citizens about some of these basic constructs. And so that, for me, is, I think, a really good example of, like, how I found where things excite me which then is what needs to drive your career decision-making, I think. And yeah. I think 
you know, you can find excitement in all sorts of things. You can find something interesting. You just have to look at it through enough different lenses to work out whether or not it's going to be exciting for you, I think. Yeah. So, so we'll do a bit of a deeper dive in um, your time in Trinet. Before okay. that, your time at Oracle, the exposure you're getting internationally and your board memberships with the Tokyo directors, the Mumbai directors, tell me, is that, again, was that planned to because it's you're, you're following your interest? And what did you learn? What are the learnings you've taken with you into Trinet there from, from your Oracle days? Yeah, so... Yes, intentional, but I think also heavily influenced by sponsorship. And I'm mentioning that because I now see it as part of what I do. So part of my role is to to sponsor and mentor and promote other people in the same way that people did that for me. So I had, you know, great sponsorship inside of Oracle. And, you know, it's not every day that you take it a 27 year old from Australia and put them on a plane and send them to corporate headquarters to run a a global function. And the only way that things like that occur inside of corporate corporations is when you have really strong sponsorship um, and people who are promoting you and believing in you. So I think there, the Tokyo, so Oracle is is somewhat unique in, in, in some ways, insofar as they have two public companies in addition to all of their subsidiaries. So the, the Mumbai entity and, and the Tokyo entity were both publicly traded companies. And again, not every day that, that you take a relatively young um, woman and put them on the board of a company in Mumbai, public company in Mumbai or public company in Tokyo. And again, that takes great sponsorship, which which I also had in the States. I think the constructs of sitting in a boardroom is absolutely invaluable. So to any attorneys that, that sort of talk to me about how do I how do I get that business acumen? How do I be more than just the attorney in the room? How do I be the strategist? How do I sit on top of concepts and think about them more broadly from an enterprise enterprise perspective. I strongly, strongly advocate for folk either sitting on, you can get yourself on a nonprofit board, sitting on any sort of governance, governing type body that has accountability mm-hmm. across a broader subject, subject range. And that yep. for me was incredibly instructive. And I, you know, very lucky, I shouldn't say lucky, fortunate to be in a place. Yep where folk were willing to sort of invest in me and, and teach me and, and, and allow me to learn. So, Yeah, yeah. getting those sponsorships and the, the mentors early in the career, uh, big theme of this podcast and how important it is. And then listening to you know people like yourself, Samantha, recognizing that importance and then feeding it back down again to into the ecosystem again and, and making sure you're doing exactly the, the same thing for the next generation coming up. Incredible, incredibly important. Tell me about some of the cultural learnings, if you like, on those international boards. And I don't know whether, for example, you aren't the, the, sorry, the only female there or the only, let's say, Australian female there. Tell me about that and, and what you learnt there and, and, and what that experience was like. Absolutely. So, yeah, only woman on each board by the time I'd, I'd shifted off and they put someone else on they, yep. they had others but at the time when I joined certainly only woman and certainly only Australian woman <laughs> for sure yep. I think that one of the funniest things I don't know if this is like, one of the funniest things that actually happened to me with the Tokyo board was when they sort of introduced you to the shareholders there's the entire sort of cultural norms around the depth of the and how yes. deep your bow is based on seniority and that sort of thing and, and I guess 
I hadn't thought about that properly and was wearing extremely high heels. I was coming to be introduced to the shareholders. And as the most junior person on the board, you, you literally have to, like your back has to flatten out. And I'm trying to- in your, in your bow, you're talking about your bow now, aren't you? Yep, okay, exactly. so. So I'm talking about my bow, your back has to flatten yeah. out. And when you're doing that in like four and a half inch heels, <laughs> that is a challenging. <laughs> Thing. But one of the funnest parts about the Tokyo board was I then got to be a sponsor for the Tokyo Women's Organization. So the, the Japan sort of so the Japan entity then had sort of a women's group. I got to be the executive sponsor of that women's group, which was a fantastic opportunity to like meet young women younger in career or earlier in yep. their career and realize very early in my career how impactful leadership is and can be meaning how large your voice is in a space where everyone is uh, looking to you for, ah, that's that's what I might want to be. And the yep. responsibility of voice, I think, is really what I took from both of those experiences, both in, in Mumbai and, and in Tokyo, was, was the responsibility that you hold as a leader and, and the volume that your voice has. Yep. Um... And so let's then transition. Mm -hmm. You you join um, Trinet. You've been there for I think it's nearly five years now. Mm -hmm. What 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 did you find when you got there, and what were your kind of early goals? And I'd like to get a sense of what you think you know that you know the first part of your journey in Trinet was like, and and if you were to kind of assess now, well, let's assess now, given the goals that you'd set for yourself. I'd be interested to to, to hear you know how you think you've how you think you've done. Well, it's worked out pretty well. I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. SVP, Chief Legal Officer. So you couldn't have done too much wrong. It's, it's worked out pretty well. I, I will say that the role at Trinet is another great example of sort of sponsorship and mentorship in action. In so far as my the boss, the, the the Chief Legal Officer that I came into Trinet to work work under had been one of my sponsors at, at Oracle and had shifted into this role and sort of oh, okay sort of saw used a skill set that I had. And this yep. role was my first opportunity to manage something that I wasn't an expert in. Like not just ask smart questions about, but actually like manage and lead a function that I was not an expert in. And I think that's a that can be a real stretch for attorneys, but I think it's it's the the most important thing you can do as an attorney if you aspire to be a leader of other attorneys with a broader remit. You have to work out how to effectively lead a function that you're not an expert in. Um, yep. Use a different part of your brain. So that that's what I came here to really learn how to do and develop that skill set. And and the role itself was it was great for me in some ways because it 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 contained a chunk that I really knew really really well. So commercial and commercial negotiations that that sort of thing knew that can do that no problem. But then also included a large amount of sort of the, the compliance and regulatory focus that this company has that yep. I really never had that, exposure to at all. Yep, and that was that bit was completely new, new to you. So how did you how did you basically get on top of that? What was your strategy to get on top of an area and a function that you'd had no expertise in and that you, you were gonna you were gonna lead? What, what what was your strategy there? I learned the business really well. So I right. went and spoke to, I didn't necessarily, it's not that I ignored my team, that's not the case yeah. at all, but yeah. I placed a lot of credence in 
going to the business, going to the, the folk who are talking to customers every day, the sales people who are out there selling the product, the product people who are developing the product, talking to all of them about what they do and where they see the customer need and then putting the regulatory construct on top of it. I leveraged external counsel very heavily, right? Meaning that your law firms, the law firms that want to work with you all have programs around how do you become an effective leader of this thing? How to let, let us spend six hours with you gratis and teach you everything you need to know, Arissa, or whatever it happens to be. And right. I leveraged all of that really heavily early on. And I think that actually served me really, really well because it gives you enough of a base that you, you understand where you're coming at the questions from. Yep. And then the, um, the part of the journey where you know, you, you've kind of got a high level understanding. Mm-hmm. Do you need to run a function? Do you need to be in the weeds and really have the detail that, let's say, a number of the attorneys, the compliance attorneys or the regulatory attorneys have? Do you do you need to get in into those weeds, or are you pretty comfortable a level or two above? It's a really good question. I think this is really hard for attorneys as well. You have to be comfortable being above. You have to know that you're really good at asking questions. So you have to know that you're, you're very good at probing questions. You have to be willing to say in front of people, I don't know, educate me, please help me understand. And if you're good at asking questions and if you're good at asking business oriented questions that understands sort of the strategy and where, the, where the, the, the business is actually trying to go, you will find any holes or issues in the in yep. sort of the legal construct that you're working with. Yep. Samantha, I know you're super passionate in the diversity inclusion, the ESG space, and that you have strong views about the roles that CLOs and GCs can play in that space. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, yes. I will. And I think my view on the ESG space is a little different to my view on DNI, even though DNI can feed into ESG. Right. Um, yep. I think that my, I think that we all have a responsibility in influencing and driving these issues, right? I think that my role in DNI at Trinet, I sit on our company's DNI steering committee. I'm a co-sponsor of the Trinet Pride colleague resource group. I do all of that in my capacity as a senior executive at the company rather than as the CLO. And I think that's yep. really important because yep. you know, I shouldn't be only a compliance-based thing. It shouldn't only be about the law. It should be yep. about the culture of the company. And I, I do consider myself, I consider myself privileged, frankly. I, I have a much broader scope than a lot of the GCs that I know. And I think that that comes from the fact that I see myself as a member of the executive team first. Obviously, I have statutory and professional obligations, right? They come first, first. But generally yep. speaking, the majority of my role is as an executive helping move the company forward rather than sort of strictly legal. And I think yep. that can be really hard for attorneys in-house insofar as you have to be always incredibly conscious. If you want to be a true business partner, if you want to engage with the business in the way that they say they want lawyers and compliance folk to engage, you have to be always conscious of which hat you're wearing, right? Like, And that the people around you know which space you're in, right? Am I I an executive right now? Am I the lawyer right now? Um, 
I think in respect of ESG, I actually do think that compliance or legal, and I, I think I'm talking here about ESG reporting and metrics as opposed to yep. generally the concepts of ESG. I think that compliance or legal is actually a really good place to start in respect of how you're reporting and tracking ESG goals and the function. Because whatever you put out in the world has to be auditable and it has to be yep. consistent with everything else you say. And I think that legal and compliance can be a really great hub um, to that. And I think it's a great opportunity for general counsels, chief legal officers, chief compliance officers who want to broaden out their remit. Right now is a fantastic opportunity to, to take ownership of finding all of those grassroots efforts that exist inside your organization, right? There is going to be some effort inside your organization that already yeah. has aimed at reducing paper cup consumption or whatever, right? Like that's already going to be there. And so it's a, such a fantastic opportunity for us to lead and say, we will help you organize all of this stuff, right? Because lawyers compliance, we're really good at organizing things. So we will organize it. We will build metrics for you. And then we're going to build a repeatable process so that every single year we can we can re-report and then we can sort of move our bar a little bit higher every year. I, I honestly think there's a really great opportunity for general counsels right now, like in this space. Yep. Yep. And we've certainly, and I've certainly seen in the last 12 or eight, a real close affinity between GCs and CLOs and the ESG space. I hadn't actually thought about it in terms of the, the natural synergies with compliance, for example, and reporting, and that's hitting naturally with the legal team. So that's it's an interesting point. I hadn't actually I hadn't thought about that before. Well, because when you think about how you how else you report, right? If you're if you're a public yep. company, you're going out into the market, you're going to be talking about elements of your company in the market. And all of those those metrics, whatever it is that you're putting out into the into the world is going to be in some sort of already yep. organized receptacle, right? Whether whether it's a filing cabinet or hopefully it's actually some sort of electronic system, you've already got it all there. So all of this this work should also be feeding into into that existing receptacle in in my view yep tell me some of the specific initiatives at trinet that you can talk about in the esg space sure uh, thank you for asking so we we are heavily vested in the s part of es where yep. we're generally speaking sort of we're in offices where we don't have a huge environmental impact we obviously have a footprint yep. we think about carbon emissions yep. all of that good stuff but it, it's not as though I, i've got factory plants and things like that yep. to think about and i think this is one of the, the one of the places where esg professionals or, or frankly general counsels who are trying to make headway in this space get a little bit stuck is there's actually no right answer right there's this whole series yep. of frameworks you can take and there's so much out there that you can help to feed whatever your strategy is but really, all you need to start is the will to start. I think that's important. In the S space, because of what we do, we are very heavily focused on S, right? We have a heavy bias towards security, privacy, and, and the import of data and information already that already exists inside of our company because it has to because of the... You know, we've got 330,000 employees across the country and we sponsor their, their health their health benefits. They're part of my single employer yep. plan. So I've got a, a huge amount of data and information about about folk and, and that's all 
already focused on and something that we then articulate to the outside world. We also, given that we're a HR company and one of the real strategic sort of drivers of, of HR engagement over the course of certainly the last 18 months, but frankly, the last five years, 10 years, has been concepts around diversity, equity and inclusion and how folks should be engaging with the concept of, of building uh, you know diverse pipelines inside of their organization, building the opportunity for diverse ideas to exist inside of their organization and how to engage with those ideas in a way that actually gives you better outcomes. All of those things are, are is work that we certainly do for our internal colleagues and also focus on for our customers. So we do have a, a fair amount of We've got a heavy, a heavy sort of focus in the S space. Governance is is something that, you know, we we went public a little while ago and we've shift we we you know matured our approach to governance over the years. We we put a lot of focus into leadership and, and our board. The board has been very intentional and and intentional and, and mapped out sort of the way that they were thinking about succession for the and succession for committees on the board and how you move from the board that took you public, that generally speaking is gonna have a pretty heavy finance bent, that with a lot of CFOs on, on your, your IPO board, to the board that then sort of builds the company into the next the next sort of evolution of, of Trinet. And they've been very intentional at that, and that's actually been fantastic to be a part of and watch, but also help to guide from, from a governance standpoint. So I, I think the thing that we're probably most proud of in respect of what we're doing in the ESG space is actually the work that we're doing internally with our colleagues and, and how much we've, we've opened up, I think, conversation inside of the organization in what uh, we believe is is a very sort of constructive way to allow different viewpoints. We have, whilst we are a US only company, we have a, you know, a very diverse population inside of our organization insofar as uh, we have large presence in, in the South, we have large presence in the Northeast, we've got large presence on the West Coast, and we've got a large presence right in the middle of the country. So we cover sort of the gamut of, of the ways in which a sort of the society here in the US engages. And I think we've done a, a pretty solid job of ensuring that we're opening up conversation and, and hearing all of the perspectives whilst remaining sort of respectful and empathetic and, and bringing people along um, in their own journey, wherever they happen to be in terms of the topic. So it's really interesting, Samantha, just as you were speaking there I was thinking about your, your own internal efforts but you're also you're you're of course you're a HR company so I, I was thinking about as you were speaking what are the learnings that you're taking from your internal efforts on the social and because you you develop your you, you have you have a HR product out there I'd love to know what which of those learnings then you put out into the world if you like into to companies like Pursuit that are using Trinet that that's I, again, I hadn't thought about that before, but I'd imagine um, there'd be great learnings there that you're saying, well, why don't we try, try this with our customers? So one of the, I'm going to give you an example. One of the coolest things that, that I think we've done over the course of the last 12 months is a, a series that we've published to the external world. So one of the things that we focused on at the very beginning of the pandemic and all the way through the pandemic was ensuring that all of the material and updates, everything that we would do for, all, for our customers, that we made it available to all small and medium sized yeah. across the country. So that was really important to us. And in addition to all of the, you know, 
HR regulation that changed, pandemic, you also had this social change going on that really was was heavily impacting our customer base, our colleague base, all of our, our WSEs across the country. And what it prompted for us was what we call what we were calling internally illustrative vignettes and they were basic they were based on choose your own adventure books which you may may remember from yeah. childhood and it's a it's a series of stories that have a whole bunch of different choice points inside the stories and they're all focused on di- different elements of diversity equity and inclusion that we made available to the entire world there are six of them the seventh is a, is about to become about sorry i apologize there are there are five currently published the the sixth is about to about to be published and that is then moving into it was so successful externally that it's moving into an internal team that that's a consulting based team and they then craft stories for customers uh, yep. to do a similar thing. So that's one example of like you try it try it here and see if it works and then oh there's actually something here that could be valuable for customers. There's there's one thing that's actually also interesting about about the concept is that Trinet is, you know, we have more than 3,000 employees across the country that are, that are corporate employees. And a lot of our customers are far smaller than that, right? So yep. what works for Trinet isn't necessarily yep. going to work for a customer. You have to adjust it and think about how you change it a little to make it really relevant to our customer base. Yep. I've heard you also talk, Samantha, about enterprise risk. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Or tell us a little bit about how you've view enterprise risk, how you, your board does, and, and perhaps some strategies you've developed to manage um, enterprise risk. Talk about that a little bit. So I, I get giggly excited about enterprise risk. <laughs> <laughs> you might be in a select few that get giggly excited, Samantha, but here we go. <laughs> I, I, I actually really enjoy it as a strategic enabler. I think yep. that the, there's, a, there's a thought process around risk that says risk, risk stops progress, Right. And I think that risk yeah. stops progress if you don't know how to engage with the risk. And yeah. a good enterprise risk management program should be identifying the risk and then identifying methods for, or like, what's, what's for my appetite? How much yeah. do I care about this risk? Yeah. And, and how am I then going to mitigate it to a place where it fits inside of my risk appetite? And actually then building that into your enterprise strategy. I think that is really exciting to think about it as an enabler. I like to think of, I think of the law, particularly inside of the company I'm in right now, the law and compliance are enablers because it's part of the value proposition that we put out to our clients. I see risk in the same way. I see it as an enabler for the corporation to actually move forward. We've been really fortunate from my perspective. I I have a very engaged board and I have a board that, that care very much about the way in which we're engaging in risk and ensuring that we're doing it in an intelligent way, not in a way that says, oh, there's risk, stop. Or in a way that says, yeah, we don't care about the risk, keep going, but rather like assess the risk, engage with it and work out how, how it can actually present an opportunity for you. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I, I was just thinking there too, I wonder whether, I wonder whether law schools have developed in the way they teach because think about how we all we look we learn to identify a risk put our hand up and say stop there's a risk Mm -hmm. but i can't remember any part of law school focused on or how we now going to manage that risk and deal with it in a way that 
you know, you can move forward, which is certainly what the business and with the business wants to know. They don't want to know that there's just a risk. Right. Fine. They want to know. They want your advice on how are we going to move forward, manage it, and and use it as an enabler. The way you've described that, I like that. I haven't heard that before. Right. But, they, um, they want it to be contextualized, right? Like yeah, your, your, correct. Your business wants the risk to be contextualized. They want it to uh, be relevant to them, right? Like in context, yep. is this even relevant to the thing I want to do? Yeah. And then yep. they want to see a way through it. Right. And I think if you think about risk properly, I, I do, I genuinely, I use that term with my team often, the concept of risk enabling progress, because if you identify it, if you identify it well, if you engage with it and then move through it, it should enable you to actually um, move forward. And, and frankly, it should also be able to identify strategic priorities for you. We're not there yeah. yet in terms of where, where our program is, but ideally by the time I get to the third year of building out the program, we should be in a place where it's identifying strategic opportunities for us as yep. opposed to we're slightly more reactive right now. We're, we're kind of there in the information management space because we, we really sort of started engaging with information risk management as a concept probably at the beginning of, of my tenure as CLO. And so it's a little more mature and I think we're a little more strategic about the way that we engage with the risk that comes from information risk management. We're less less progressed from a, from an enterprise risk management perspective in respect of other types of risks. Yeah, I've also read a little bit about your interest and passion in the shared economy and the impact that has on the American dream. I don't want to say any more than that. I'd like, could you kind of elaborate a bit on that the shared economy sorry sorry the shared and the impact on the uh, american dream yeah and i so i think about this in the context of the role of the employer this is why i, f- I find this fascinating right because the concept right. of the shared economy you we before we started the podcast yep. you were talking about this idea that you know i i can just show up and there's a there's a podcast studio and and it's here and all i do is show up and i share it with other people other people are engaged oh, d- d- don't give the secret source away <laughs> samantha everyone everyone thinks there's a huge production effort behind this very successful podcast <laughs> it's very hard you can't do it it takes years of but, but years of effort right that's there is there there is this great huge effort that exists behind this podcast that you're sharing with other folk and that scale enables you to do what yep. you do. It's somewhat similar to sort of what we do at Trinet, actually. No, I haven't made that, that connection before, but it's somewhat similar to what we do at Trinet. But but really, when I think about the shared economy and the American dream, I, I think when I first moved here, and certainly when I first got to Trinet, I, I wasn't as conscious of just how important the role of the employer is in certain elements of a societal construct that coming from a country like Australia, you sort of think is more like that's the government's job. Whereas here, it's really the role of the employer. And so when you shift to a world that things are shared and there is less focus on the role of the employer and more focus on sort of the autonomy of the human and doing work and flexibility for workers, it brings a huge number of, of questions with respect to the traditional role that the employer has played. So when I think about it in the context of the American dream, Think about it like, you know, I'm going to do my time. I'm going to work, do my time. That's terrible. I, I don't think about my time <laughs> that way at all. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to engage in my job and then I'm going to retire. And part of my retirement is 
the 401k that my employer paid into over the the course of my career. Now that's not essential for retirement, but it's certainly part of the way in which the the sort of the American dream is constructed, right? And so if you think about the shifting role of the employer, you have to also then think about what products or services need to be made available to this type of worker in in a way that that future-proofs them. I was having a fascinating conversation uh, with someone in my team today, actually, about the idea of, we were talking about sort of care and the value of care in the economy. So the care economy and the concept of the care economy or carers as infrastructure and, and how we think about that from a societal perspective. And she was telling me, you know, she, she doesn't have children. She's she's older in her career or further along in her career. And she was explaining to me that she'd created a series of sort of trusts and taken out specific insurance to enable her care to be paid for. And she's able to forward think that way because yep. she's in the benefit space. She knows what, you know, folk need when they get to that part of their career. But how do we ensure that all of these folk who are engaging this this great flexibility, this, this wonderful flexibility that allows people, you know, work from anywhere for anyone that like own their own time, time being your most valuable asset. They own their own time yep. in a certain way. But how do we ensure that they're protecting themselves and ensuring that they actually have a, a place to go at the end? They, they can live that American dream. That, that's how I think about it. I think it's super exciting, particularly from a regulatory construct perspective. And I think the conversations that we're having here in this country around the concept of the future and, and care as infrastructure are really great conversations in, in order to move us forward in, in that space. And they're so important uh, for any of us who've actually had experience, for example, with older parents and seeing or relatives and seeing what that part of your life looks like and what's necessary to make that part of your life as you know, with as much respect and dignity as possible. It's a, there's a huge amount of effort and infrastructure that you need to support all of and and a lot of it can't be automated. <laughs> One thing about when you get older in life and the care that you need and the support, there's lots of things you know in our lives that become automated. I think that's gonna that's really hard. So that is it, it requires kind of personal intense commitment, well, and as I said, such a huge of huge importance, especially when you experience it directly yeah. um, through your own family. You recognise how important that is. Yeah, and I think when you think about the role of care in our lives now, right? So so a lot of people will think about it in the context of their kids. But if to your point, if you've got an older parent, an older grandparent, you know, relative person for whom you care, it is a, a full time job for a lot of a lot of folk. It yeah. or or they're doing it on top of a full time job because they can't afford to do it as a full time job. And and it's grueling. Like it's it's yeah. genuinely hard work. And I think that if we think about the fact that there's, there's definitely a gender bias, right? The, the stats will tell you that there is a gender bias in carers and it, it is more likely than not that it's that it's the woman or, or a woman yep. who is acting as a carer in any of those circumstances. And I think that if you, if you think about sort of creating equity or quality in a workforce, you have to pay attention to the value of and how to facilitate folk either paying for care, in-home care, how do, how do I feed that? How do I pay for that? Or valuing the work that the human's doing in a way that allows them to be the carer. And thus, I'm going to use the word burden, and I don't mean in respect of the human, I mean it in respect of a burden on the social social safety net. How do you do that? I think that's fascinating. I love that we're 
we're sort of we're having that conversation in this country at the moment. I think that's great. Yep. Um, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and the um, impact that it had, on, certainly on some of the Trinet initiatives. Talk a bit more broadly, I suppose, around the impact that you've seen across you know, the ESG, the enterprise risk um, space, and also the diversity, equity, inclusion space. What's the, what have you seen and what are perhaps some of the, some of the learnings that, uh, that you've kind of come across in the last 18 months, given the experience that we've all had? Yeah, so I think I think it's it, it's a really interesting question to engage with because obviously there's been a lot of loss, right? There's a lot yeah. a lot of folk have lost their lives, lost families, lost businesses, lost jobs, all of those things. And then you you have you view that against sort of what's currently happening in the economy and the way in which businesses are thriving right now some businesses i should say some, some business, businesses yeah. are actually thriving. there's a complete disproportionate impact isn't there i was just thinking about this the other day you're almost i feel at the same time guilty and helpless about this complete disproportionate impact that the the pandemic has had on you know certain sections of society and, and businesses i don't know what the answer is but it's there's a there's a podcast that you and i both listen to uh, and the host has referred to this a number of times as like these there are people who are currently living their best life right when we're yeah. on lockdown living your best yeah. life i i have you know folk who have multiple homes or at least just one really large home at home with their kids and you know working out and you know no commute and things are working great right versus um sort of the, the there's another sector of society where that where that is not occurring and didn't occur yep. i think one of the things that i do choose to take from it in terms of you know there, there was a dif- absolute disproportionate impact on the careers of particularly women that relates back yep. to the caring concept the care economy concept and i think that i choose to see the, the, the good that came from that, which is that we're now having a conversation about that in a very real way, in a very impactful way. And I think that's great. I think the fact that we now have a space for conversation is excellent. I think that a lot of the, the social unrest that occurred, particularly in America, but we saw sort of protests across the world, I guess, but particularly in America last year, really forced a lot of companies in particular, and this comes back to the role of the employer inside of the social construct, but forced a lot of companies to really work out what their principles were, right? Like, how do I engage with this as a concept? And how do I, you know, actually put something behind this, this, what might have previously been corporate speak around, you know, yes, we believe in equity and, 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 you know, yes, bring your authentic self to, to work, please. But what does that really mean, right, inside a company? And, and how do you engage with a, a number of your, your employees who are really struggling, frankly, through some of, the, some of the time last year? We found inside of our organization, certainly some teams, some teams absolutely felt that they were working better than ever right? Yeah. I'm far more functional. I'm, I'm working better yeah. than ever. And then we have other folk who, based on whatever their own personal circumstance happens to be, you know, are, are dealing with four kids around a kitchen table trying to do homeschooling at the same time as, you know, taking a customer call or dealing with their, whatever the thing is that they're trying to deal with for the, for the, the office. And, and I think that's, it really forced a lot of folk to have a lot of empathy, for whatever your own personal circumstance is. And I think that's good. And we are choosing at our company, choosing to continue those conversations, which I think is a really great thing. Um, 
I think as well in the economy piece, it, the, the, the interesting part is like to the point about sort of it's, it's there's two different, almost two different economies going on or, or you're almost embarrassed by sort of the, the fact that it, it, it hasn't been as impactful. Yep. You know, we, we reported for the second quarter in, in a row just now that the, the, the largest hiring that has occurred in our small and medium sized business space ever, right? Yeah. The second quarter in a row, more people are being hired more people are getting jobs, which just sort of is, is a particular segment for sure. Yep. But it, it's just fascinating when you think about that success versus what else is going on. Yep. Priorities, um, Samantha, yep. for the next 12 and 24 months, what, what's ahead of you? What are you focused on? What's going what's gonna to keep you up at night? Oh, what's ahead of me? What am I focused on? So ahead of me, I'm, I'm super excited and, and focused on, I'm sponsoring one of our, again, with my executive hat on, as opposed to my lawyer hat on, sponsoring one of our, our key strategic initiatives in the coming years. And that's the, the work that we'll be working on and championing is focused on you know, finding and unlocking the right value elements to provide to our customers. How can we better service them and provide them with more value using yep. sort of some of the principles that we've talked about already, like this idea of how do I create a framework and, and give you a framework in which you can bounce your own business ideas off, but that but it sort of utilizes all of the learnings that, that we've taken inside of our company. And then I, the other thing I'm very, very much focused on is building out the enterprise risk management program and, and ensuring we end up as a key strategic partner with the business in the way that we want to. I think they're my my key my key focus areas. I think in terms of what keeps me up at night, frankly right now, the there is a there is a war for talent. I shouldn't say war, it's not a war, but there is a there is a significant sort of talent shift going on in in the US in particular. And what keeps me up at night is frankly making sure and ensuring that I'm doing everything I can to keep my team engaged, give them opportunities, making sure that we're focused on on keeping folk engaged and keeping yep. them with good work. Because I, I was actually having this conversation a little earlier today. I, I think that, you know, the most valuable thing I, that, that a lawyer has, a compliance folk have, oftentimes is time, right? Frankly, most of us. But I think lawyers yep. understand the value of time more than most, having most of us spent our early years keeping it very... Reco- recording every <laughs> six-minute block, yes, of course. So we understand the value of time and and ensuring that we're putting time into our people and, and ensuring that our people are getting the opportunities that they want because I, I, I am very conscious of the fact that there's just this very large shift going on, which is exciting for folk, like the idea of future future opportunities and stuff, all very exciting. But I'm I'm doing my hardest to to make sure that we and, and that's all about that's all about retention, mm-hmm. I, I take it, really Absolutely. making sure that you're not losing your best talent yep. um, to opportunities out there and that you're putting yourself in a position where you can hire, you can continue hiring. Exactly. Um, exactly. great talent. Samantha, I always say you get the team right, everything else will. You get the team wrong, then it's really hard. Yeah. So I'd absolutely double down um, on staying up at night thinking about that kind of stuff because that's the most important. Samantha, tell me, this is a question that you'll recognize because I have stolen from another podcast and I continue (laughs) repeating here. And I'm going to shout it out. This is from the Prof G show, Professor Galloway. He always asks about what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? So... I think, I think at 25, I hadn't yet worked out that I am responsible for my own happiness. Yep. And I think if I... Oh, that's a good one. 
That is a good one. Taking ownership of your own... I love that. Taking ownership of your own happiness and working out it's not about the external stuff. Yes. And that as long as you continue... Sorry, I've stolen your thumb. That's really fine. Uh, Keep going. Yeah, but uh, it's it's funny because those... because as soon as you work that out, it's like a, it's, it changes change everything. everything. It's the, and sorry, just a, the working out that it doesn't matter. If you let the external influences impact on your happiness, you will never be happy. Yeah. And as soon as you work out that it's all about you and then dealing with those influences and that you control how you feel about all of that... I wish someone had told me me yeah. that at 25, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and what are the experience? Well, when did that happen to you? I'd be interested. When did that kind of happen to you? And what what was it that caused that that aha moment to say, I actually, ah. this is all about? Yeah. When, when, when was that? To inadvertently get a little personal. So I my my first marriage broke up, and I spent a lot of time angsting about you know what had happened and why it had happened, yep. that sort of stuff. And yep. and someone who you know. I consider a very dear friend um, sort of sat me down and said, you know, you, you're, you're the only person that can take charge of your own happiness. You're responsible for your own happiness. And something just clicked for me. Like I, I remember yeah. the conversation and I remember sitting there and going, Oh, huh. Yeah. And it's changed the way that I engage with the world since. And so I do think the one thing that I would, I, I focus very hard on not having regrets, right? Like every single thing that I've done has brought me to where I am. So so we're all a product of our own experiences. And if, if I was to change something, do something differently, butterfly effect, right? I, yeah. I'd be someone with a different set of experiences and I'd be in a different spot. And, and I like who I am and I like where I am. But I, I do think that the one thing I might learn a little earlier is that that you are responsible for your own happiness and you have to be, like you only get one opportunity so you, you have to make sure that you're engaging with it in the best way possible and, and controlling what you can control and not worrying about the things that you can't control. Yeah. Samantha, I have to say I love that. It's one of my favourite answers. And I don't think anyone's articulated it in that way, but taking responsibility for your own happiness. For the audience out there, if you can, the earlier you can do that, and if that's a light bulb moment, it's like one of the most... One of the most fantastic and eye-opening moments because your your entire life can shift once you work that out, and it's such a thing. Just think, it's such a simple thing. Just take responsibility for your own happiness, and and you determine what those external facts, how they impact on you. Once you've done that, and the thing that actually then shifted for me in respect of my career was it also yeah. translated into taking responsibility for my own career. And I think yep. I'd done I'd done a lot of the things that you're supposed to do, right? Like I sort of engaged hard and I worked hard and I was a good, like I did all the things you were supposed to do as, as a good lawyer. But when you actually, when you acknowledge that you're responsible for your own happiness and you think, okay, my happiness is, is uh, here are the things that I'm going to need to be happy. I need to be fulfilled in my career because I'm going to spend a hell of a lot of my, my lifetime doing the thing. Yep. So I need it to be fulfilling for me. And when you work that out, you then take charge of where your career is going and, and you end up in a really good space, like where I am right now. So. <laughs> yep. And on that note, Samantha Wellington, thank you so much for joining me in the podcast. It's been an absolute blast. I've had a great time. Good. Thank you so much. I have too. And I've loved sitting and listening to an Australian accent. So thank you very much. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Thanks, 
Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.